Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Dr. Rory Cooper, who holds several positions, including Associate Dean for Inclusion and Paralyzed Veterans of America, Professor of Rehabilitation, Science and Technology, and Orthopedic Surgery at the University of Pittsburgh. He is also the founding director and the VA Senior Research Career Scientist at the Human Engineering Research Laboratories. He is also a Professor of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the Uniform Services University of the Health Services. Welcome, Rory. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you, Gil. Um, I want to rewind time uh, a bit uh, to the early 80s. And, um, you know, if you could talk about um, what happened in the early 80s, you were a young recruit into the U.S. Army, uh, positioned in Germany. And, you know, what happened there and what led you to the career that you are currently currently in at the University of Pittsburgh? Well, uh, thank you. Well, basically what happened is that uh, I had a, um, some, suffered some knee injuries. And so therefore, in order to try to recover, I was uh, uh, bicycling rather than running. And I, uh, one day, um, actually July 23rd, 1980, nearly 40 years ago, I was uh, uh, out exercising on my bicycle when I got uh, sideswiped by a, a, a bus and then hit head on by a truck. And it caused me to have multiple uh, injuries. Uh, most severe and lasting among them was a spinal cord injury. Um, yeah. And uh, I was, um, after several months of hospitalization and rehab, I was, uh, I was sent home. And a few months later, I started college at California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo, California, mm-hmm. where I later earned a bachelor's and a master's degree in electrical and computer engineering. Yeah, so so you so your interest in this area started then, 
in terms of in the area meaning uh, wheelchairs and and generally uh, rehabilitation services and technology. Yes, um, it started actually for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of them is that uh, I realized that I'd have to. Uh, if anybody knows the cal the the topography of Cal Poly, it's built on a hillside, and that I'd have to be able to push around campus and get up and down those hills. Yeah. And so I started pushing the chair I received, and it was, and it fell apart uh, within a few weeks. Mm. Uh, just just much like a hospital chair, the, the chair you would see in hospitals to move patients around today. Um, and it really wasn't suitable for um, an a, a young active person or actually anybody that wants to be um, be active and participate in various aspects of society. And, um, and so I was fortunate that uh, my friends um, in the army and, and they did a fun run and raised some money to buy me my first uh, sports wheelchair, which is a, a quadro wheelchair built by an athlete called Jeff Minabreaker. Uh, yeah. Later, I, uh, I took that and started building my own wheelchairs um, as I got um, more skills from engineering school. <laughs> right, yeah. And, and wheelchair uh, is a complex machine, right? Because it has to really do a variety of things, right? Could you talk a little bit about, you know, sort of the architecture of the wheelchair itself? Yeah, well, actually, um, we should talk about wheelchairs in two broad ways. There are manually prepared wheelchairs, essentially wheelchairs you propel yourself. And, and in a few rare cases, there's wheelchairs that are uh, attendant propelled. Um, they're used mostly by, uh, by, young, by younger people, by kids, and in some yeah. cases by adults where they can't use a power chair, but that's fairly uncommon. And there's powered wheelchairs. So we just start with powered wheelchairs for a moment. They're essentially mobile robots. Yeah. And uh, they're probably the most prolific mobile robots on the planet, I would say, uh, because there's you know literally hundreds of thousands of them in use and they provide daily mobility to people with uh, very complex disabilities. Uh, and so, um, and they're every year they get um, smarter and and uh, have more robotic features, um, as such as obstacle avoidance or obstacle negotiation, um, object recognition. But even even the simplest power wheelchair uh, has um, pretty sophisticated user interfaces and and also uh, controls for controlling um, controlling the speed and acceleration and direction because they have to be able to interact safely with other people in the environment for that matter people children yeah. and pets and uh, family members and just people in uh, in public spaces and down down on public sidewalks uh, manual wheelchairs though um, you would think would be simpler but in many regards are just as complicated but the uh, challenges are uh, more based on the ergonomics. Yeah. So you have to um, 
make them, typically the goal is to make them light, stiff, maneuverable, and, um, and such that they support the person for good seating, a good seating position and posture, but also uh, not damage the, uh, the upper extremities. So the primarily the um, wrist, elbow and shoulder uh, for due to repeated motion. That's yeah. another thing that uh, it's often overlooked when the people that are not, uh, you know, clinicians or expert users or engineers that are involved in the field that um, from an ergonomic perspective, manual wheelchair propulsion is a very challenging task because people uh, typically, uh, when they push their wheelchair daily use, their arms, uh, the contact of push rims, which are the, the, the devices they use to propel the wheelchair forward uh, yeah. thousands of times per day. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty strenuous um, ergonomic task from that perspective as well. Mm -hmm. Have the materials changed over time? Oh, yes. Uh, actually, the material changes are in many regards, I would say second to the under, better understanding of the ergonomics, the material changes have also been uh, um, uh, essentially equally important in the uh, evolution of design of wheelchairs. So the, uh, the first wheelchairs um, all the way up actually until about 1930 were primarily wood. Hmm. Um, in some cases they had even you know, a little bit earlier the night in the, in the early 1900s, they did have um, some steel spokes, but uh, um, adopted from bicycles at the time. But uh, now the wheelchairs, you know, then of course in the 1930s, Herb Everest and Harry Jennings came up with the first steel folding wheelchair, which actually became the dominant wheelchair on the market all the way up until the early 1980s. And then at that time, people started to experiment with other materials. Um, at first, aluminum was the, uh, became available, uh, more widely available, and, and also the, the tools to, to shape and to weld aluminum became more widely available, more knowledgeable. And so, and aluminum wheelchairs are still very ubiquitous even today. Um, yeah. But other um, better steel materials, they are craft industry, uh, also widely populated, uh, chromium molybdenum steel, also known as chromoly. Uh, that's actually a very good material for making both manual and power wheelchairs. And it's interesting because of the high strength of steel, you can use less of it and and it, you can pretty much make a very lightweight steel wheelchair or a very lightweight aluminum wheelchair, depending on the design features. And then um, really actually in the 1990s and early 2000s, uh, titanium became available. And titanium is also, um, is now fairly widely used in uh, wheelchair, manual wheelchair design. Uh, titanium has, uh, uh, several desirable properties. And one of them is that it doesn't rust. Um, and so, uh, and neither does aluminum really, but um, it's also pretty uh, wear abrasive. 
So when you, um, if somebody by accident, for example, when loading it in a car, scrapes the frame along the street or the sidewalk, you can mm -hmm. kind of uh, polish it out again with a uh, with a an abrasive pad. Um, yeah. And so uh, and and so that as a is a pretty nice feature to it. It's also very lightweight, and then um, it's uh, um, um, has a little bit of a uh, a little bit of a spring to it, oh. and uh, and so um, they're among um, the high end uh, uh, for you know power uh, manual wheelchairs. You see a lot of titanium. Now power mm -hmm. wheelchairs are mostly steel and aluminum, uh, which okay. makes sense. Uh, they don't have the same uh, weight constraints, although oddly enough, or interestingly enough, that's becoming more of an issue today. Uh, people would like to see uh, lighter power wheelchairs that they can more easily transport. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the optimization there would be cost also, right? So titanium, I would imagine it's more costly. And, you know, the interesting thing is titanium is more costly than aluminum and aluminum is more costly than steel. But the uh, amount of titanium, aluminum, or steel in the wheelchair itself is a small fraction of the overall cost. Okay, okay. And so this is only one of the modalities that that you are uh, doing at Human Engineering Research Laboratories at uh, University of Pittsburgh. Could you talk a little bit about uh, all the various activities? I know that you are pursuing sort of full uh, full fledged uh, robotics in in various activities. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, so it's difficult to talk about all the projects because we have about <laughs> eighty ongoing projects. Yeah. Um, but if the ones involving robotics, we, um, I think one of the things I'm, I think that uh, I'm very uh, pleased with is that we uh, developed the robotic assisted transfer device, also known as Strongarm, which has yeah. actually um, helped pioneer the field of powerful robots in close proximity with people. So mm -hmm. um, we started on that project but uh, 15 years ago now, um, it's actually been licensed to RE Squared or RE, RE2, which is a local robotics company in Pittsburgh that, to do the manufacturing and sales. Yeah. But um, the uh, strong arm, what was, what's unique about it is it has the ability to lift a person out of their power wheelchair and then transfer them onto another surface like a bed or a toilet which allows people to go out in the community and go shopping with their family or, or stay in a hotel or visit family or friends um, overnight and without having to take you know, a bunch of different other equipment or um, have their friends install equipment that uh, they wouldn't otherwise need to use. And is it something that is, uh, is it, so, sorry, Rory, is it something that's attached to the wheelchair or is it a different equipment altogether? It attaches to the wheelchair and that's one of the bases because you don't have to have a separate base of support. You use the power wheelchair as the base of support. Yeah. And then it's ambidextrous. In other words, it can be on the left side or the right side of the wheelchair that runs on a track that yeah. allows it to be positioned in the back so it's out of the way when it's not in use. Of course, of course, it can be removed 
if you're uh, not going to use it for an extended period of time. Or, for example, if you're going to travel, then you can pack it in a box and and uh, take it as luggage or um, or ship it ahead of time if that's what you so desire. And then um, it lets the person. Well, I also work with a company out of Canada called Kinova for um, a wheelchair-mounted robotic arm. But it also can be mounted on another surface. And that allows individuals to uh, do manipulation tasks. So yeah. like, like eating or meal preparation, um, or simply if you, you know, don't have the ability to use your, to use your arms, if you drop a book or uh, drop your smartphone, then mm-hmm. you, know, you can use it to pick it up. Or, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, we've uh, developed a lot of different control interfaces and also made the uh, work with them to make the robot much smarter. So for example, we have a smartphone uh, interface or a tablet interface that makes it intuitive where you can just use your finger to control the robot arm. So, um, and then also along the same lines, you can do uh, what's called visual servoing. So yeah. in other words, you see an object and then you can have the robot kind of servo in on the object, which um, makes the control a lot more intuitive. Um, right, right. And uh, we also work on mobile robots. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Back in the 1990s, we worked on the iBot, which uh, is now brought to market by uh, the, for a while it was on the market by Johnson & Johnson, and then it went dormant for a while. Now it's back on the market through through, uh, Dean Kamen's company up in in, uh, New Hampshire. And uh, that's a robotic wheelchair that can balance on two wheels. you're probably much more familiar with the iBot's cousin, the Segway. Oh, yeah. Um, so we worked on both of those projects. Uh, the iBot is now back on the market. And um, that's a pretty cool uh, robotic-powered mobility device because um, it can um, balance on two wheels. It can climb four-inch curbs. It can uh, do um, self-leveling in the uh, fore and aft direction, backwards and forwards. Um, based on the shortcomings of the iBot, we started developing the MeBot. Mm-hmm. And the MeBot is the mobility enhancement robotic wheelchair, which uh, can self-level um, or what they call attitude control, uh, forwards, at, fore, aft, and left, right. So laterally and fore, aft. And um, or pitch and roll, depending on your perspective. Um, the uh, and it, um, it that so that allows people to uh, to go up a ramp or down a ramp or a cross slope. And what's really exciting about the MeBot is even if you like are driving down the sidewalk and somebody and you try to avoid hitting a person, for example, and you swerve towards the street. And you can actually catch you if you drop one wheel off the off the curb. Yeah. So you can drive with one wheel on the curb and one wheel off the curb. Uh-huh. So you can um, get to a position where you can 
get both wheels either on one surface or the other surface. Um, and it also can climb eight inch curbs. Um, and it has all full seat functions. It's got lateral tilt, forward tilt, leg rest elevation, uh, backrest uh, 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 back recline, and then also a seat tilt, which allows it to accommodate individuals with very severe disabilities. Right, right. One of the challenges uh, I would imagine is, is really the human machine interface, right? Um, and I know that you're doing a lot of work in that area. How does the human interact with the machine? And I also wondered, um, are the projects also focused on, um, you know, we increasingly see a lot of artificial intelligence applications, right? So can the machine, can the chair actually learn the habits um, of the human over time and, and become smarter and smarter? Are there uh, developments in that area as well? So th that's a great question. And so, yes, um, I actually would argue that, it, well, I know in assistive technology, we have probably the most widely used AI product. Um, and that's the virtual seating coach, which yeah. is available on all permobile powered wheelchairs. And it uses AI to exactly that, not only to learn a person's habits, but to use what call virtual coaching to try to um, in, to encourage people to be to perform more healthy activities. We're talking about we're trying to do in this case maintain health of the soft tissue in the seated areas or to prevent lymphedema, and it can be also used for other conditions as well. But mm -hmm. what it does is it studies your your habits. So not only these habits for your use of your power seat functions, but where you go and when you go and tries to learn when are you most likely to be susceptible to coaching. And then right. at that time, to provide instruction on how you might better contribute to your um, improving or maintaining your own health. Um, the MeBot also uses AI um, in order to um, determine your intent in, an, uh, in a complex environment. So try to explain that basically, let's say you're, um, you're crossing a, um, there's, let's say there's no curb cut yeah. on a busy intersection and you wanna cross the street, then MeBot uh, incorporates software that where you it would see there's a curb in front of you and based on your behavior and the environment would start to do the path planning to climb that curb mm -hmm. curb because it would be learning to know that based on your behavior and the environment that's probably what your intent is right. So, right. and then it could start preparing and the idea is if it can start preparing then it can you can um, climb the curb faster and cross the street faster and reduce your risk of getting hit by a vehicle, for example. Right, right. And audio uh, is becoming more of a mechanism for communications with machines, right? Um, granted, you know, the, the demise of the computer mouse is probably <laughs> greatly exaggerated, but uh, we are increasingly talking to the machine 
And uh, I would imagine, you know, there are developments in that arena too, right? Well, I would actually say it's, it goes both directions. Yeah. Um, the machine talking to us and us talking to the machines. So yeah. uh, that's certainly an area as well. I think the, um, the real benefit there is the, um, the smartphone being, a, a, you know, not only being a fairly powerful computer itself, but connected to cloud computing to even more powerful resources. And the fact that uh, there's a lot more natural language learning algorithms going up, being developed. And so yeah. we are obviously taking advantage of those um, for uh, the various types of robot control. They're, they're a little trickier for um, outdoor mobility because the, the ambient noise and other people yeah. talking and things like that. But, Right, right, right. Yeah. And uh, autonomous vehicles, for example, you know, there's a lot of talk about fleet management. Uh, and uh, I don't know what the numbers are, numbers are Rory, but, um, y- you know, the, the, uh, how many wheelchairs are in operation in the U.S. approximately? About 4 million. About 4 million. So that's not a small number. Uh, do you see, um, you know, the wheelchairs communicating with each other? Or is that something that is probably way into the future? Um, I, I, uh, that's a funny question, because we haven't, we have actually investigated that. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, I would say so wheelchairs, um, less communicate with one another but a lot of wheelchairs now communicate with, um, with the manufacturer. Mm. Do you think more like cars started yeah. out by communicating with the manufacturer or the, so the, so for example, if the, so you could do predictive maintenance, for example. Right. So, so you don't have, you get the wheelchair repaired before you need it to be repaired. Right. 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 So, better to have it repaired the day before you need it than it does to have it broken down somewhere. Um, and then also that they uh, can um, um, communicate based on usage, right? So you, it's the same basic concept, but more like for when you need the wheelchair repaired or when the wheelchair needs to be replaced or batteries need to be replaced, some component like that. Um, what I actually think is in a, a little more interesting problem is what you alluded to with self-driving cars. Yeah. So as there are more autonomous vehicles, uh, even, even lower levels of autonomy, not completely autonomous vehicles, that's uh, uh, provided the opportunity for more people with disabilities to drive um, with a restricted license. Right. Um, but I also think, you know, eventually we have to look at um, making sure that autonomous vehicles are also accessible vehicles. So yeah. if I use a wheelchair or a walker or um, I'm visually impaired or hearing impaired, that I can uh, communicate with and then access autonomous vehicles um, even in the short term, to do that, improve those services through ride sharing, at least with ride sharing, there's a human driver that you can 
kind of explain your needs on the fly. Yeah. It's a completely autonomous vehicle, then you need to have communication. And that's where you're, um, where I think it's important is that the wheelchair talk to the car, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Say, I'm this kind of wheelchair and I have this kind of uh, uh, tie down system and I need this type of occupant restraints, right? Yeah. And then you yeah, can yeah. send the right vehicle and the vehicle and the wheelchair can communicate. And actually, when the when you got close, the wheelchair and the vehicle could potentially communicate to help with uh, with uh, ingress and egress and docking. Right, right. And I I think in the you know just thinking about this in the smart home context, uh, we're all getting older. Um, yeah, and so you know wheelchairs could become sort of an essential component of a home um, when there is a there is a mobility issue uh, as people people get older uh, going up the stairs you know variety of movements and um, you know we, we have now ways to uh, ways to gather wearable you know wearable technologies ways to gather uh, health related information as well and so I think there is a sort of an environment being created inside the home uh, that requires perhaps a wheelchair or wheelchair-like modality to be present. I'm just speculating. No, no, I think uh, that's an excellent idea. And we actually are doing research in that area as well, where um, we're using, um, basically trying to inter get to merge assistive technology like wheelchairs and wheelchair-mounted robotic arms with yeah. ubiquitous um, home automation technology. Yeah. So um, devices that uh, do control the home environment like lighting and temperature and uh, um, for that matter, people's television and, and provide music and all kinds of other uh, ability to open doors and close doors. All of that makes a perfect sense. And if they know that you're a wheelchair user, then it can um, uh, help interact, right? Um, yeah. For that matter, it can also help from a, from a health perspective, like you mentioned. So the idea of um, what is called aging in place, right? Allowing people to stay in their homes right. as long as possible. In the, these home automation systems, talking to the wheelchair, for example, if they find out that the wheelchair hasn't moved for quite a while, right? Then it, yeah. that's a good indication that there yeah. might be some sort of health issue going on. Right, so, right, exactly, yeah. Well, if the wheelchair is located next to the bed and hasn't moved for a day, right? That's kind right. of an extreme case, but that's probably a good reason to, to have somebody come in and intervene. Yeah, I mean, you could also, you know, uh, you might be able to build in things like temperature, uh, blood pressure, you know, heartbeat and things like that into the into the modality, too. That's so, exactly right. Actually, yeah. we just recently wrote a grant to um, actually having a wearable garment, right? That yeah. Would, that would measure those physiological signs. And then obviously, the nice thing is you've got this a mobile robot that you're riding around in, in a power chair at least, right? And right. then uh, and then you could have your uh, 
Garmin talk to your wheelchair, and for that matter, could talk to your home automation system and say, um, we need to get you some help. Yeah, and, and from a production standpoint, Rory, is 3D printing pretty close for something like this? Actually, um, yes. Uh, 3D printing is actually, uh, this is probably one of the better areas for 3D printing because uh, there's so many, 3D printing is very good when you need small numbers of highly specialized um, devices or or components. Yeah. And that's exactly what most people with disabilities need when they're is to in order to customize the technology to fit an individual's needs as we talked about earlier on the ergonomic side. Yeah. Right. And so that's where um, 3D printing is is uh, excellent. So and we use 3D printing extensively in our lab. Uh, literally we make tens of thousands of 3D printed parts per year. Um, right now, even more because we're making swabs for COVID-19 for the VA, but even mm -hmm. in our assistive technology work, it's a great way to um, make a device affordably and in a fairly rapid turnaround to for an individual. So I'll give you an example. Uh, yeah. Recently, we had a veteran who um, lost both of his legs in Afghanistan and also had a traumatic brain injury. And he lives at home uh, with home automation technology. Uh, for example, uh, a speech system that allows him to unlock and lock doors and open doors in his house. Um, but also, they recently, his wife, uh, got, became pregnant, and he would like to participate in childcare. Mm -hmm. So we work to modify a car seat, a child car seat, to attach to his wheelchair, so that he can uh, um, take his child out, uh, so he can change change the child's the baby's diapers and take her out take her out for a walk, or, um, and uh, that we, you know, we use a lot of 3D printed and rapid prototype parts. Um, yeah. And so uh, then that's allowed us to do that development for him and his wife and child, obviously, uh, very quickly. And then the nice thing is it, it comes off and the wife can put it in the car as a, as a child seat as well. And uh, obviously, um, you know, that would be, wouldn't be so cost effective if it weren't for um, not only 3D printing, but, but flexible manufacturing technology. Right. And so like computer numerically controlled machines that allow you to um, quickly uh, make all kinds of different parts and components without having to develop a lot of specialized tooling. Yeah, yeah. And so, so in conclusion, Rory, you know, um, if you look forward uh, five years uh, from the from your lab perspective, from human engineering research lab perspective, where do you see the the most important uh, innovations are likely to be? So I think they are likely to be in the areas of uh, robotics, 
automation and uh, and machine learning. Hmm. And, and I think we'll see those applied to um, uh, both independent living and mobility. And I, I use the term mobility because I've talked about mobility in the home, uh, mobility in some on you know road, you know roadways or motor vehicles, uh, airline transportation, public other forms of public transportation, such as buses and trains as well. Yeah, yeah, computer-assisted mobility um, becomes a a more general area, I would imagine, right? It does, and I actually think all of us will. You, I think that we're all merging towards computer-assisted mobility. Using GPS navigation and and road planning and um, communicate and, and you know um, on demand vehicles to uh, allow alerting buses all of those it's all merging the idea is that uh, computer assisted mobility um, becomes um, merged with uh, with uh, mobility for people with disabilities and older adults. Yeah. Yeah, this has been great, Lori, and uh, thanks, uh, thanks much for the time that you spent with me, and uh, good luck with uh, all the all the projects, all eighty of them that you are pursuing at uh, Pittsburgh. Thank you very much, Gil. It's been a pleasure to be on your podcast. Thank you. Bye.